0: Regenerative Medicine Today. I'm Leah Kaufman,
1: and I'm John Murphy. Before we begin, I'd like to invite our listeners to tell us more about their interests, so that we can bring you the interviews and information you'd like to hear. We hope you'll take a few minutes to complete the listener survey on our website at www.regenerativemedicine.today.com. All survey respondents will be entered into a drawing for a McGowan Institute Felice vest.
0: And now, on to today's podcast. Last week, you heard from Dr. Harvey Borovitz, a bioengineer who helped to pioneer the design and use of artificial hearts. Today, you'll hear from Dr. Borovitz's longtime clinical collaborator, Dr. Robert Cormos, the medical director of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine and director of the Artificial Heart Program at the University of Pittsburgh.
1: Thanks, Leah. And now, let's hear your conversation with Dr. Cormos.
0: So Dr. Cormos is with us today discussing the artificial heart, which he's had a large part in helping to make um, part of the sort of standard of care. It's not exactly standard, but it is definitely available to many people who are in need of a device to either tide them over until transplant, and there's some radical new uses for these devices as well, which we'll talk about. So tell me, uh, what was the impetus for developing an artificial device that could take over some of the function of the heart?
2: Well, I I think uh, back in 1985, when the transplant program was growing here at the University of Pittsburgh, we were faced uh, at that time with a a large population of patients awaiting donor hearts for cardiac transplantation. And the only therapy at that time besides drug therapy was an interaortic balloon pump placed through the groin to help alleviate the workload of the heart. And patients that stayed on that device for long periods of time beyond 10 days, two weeks, would very often get complications from this device, getting infections and damage to the arteries in the groin, and the leg, and it, it became a very morbid type of procedure. So patients that waited till that point usually uh, succumbed to the ravages of heart failure before an organ could become available. At that time, uh, the device that we looked at was the Jarvik 7 total artificial heart. There had been one other device used as a bridge to transplant, one other implant used as a bridge to transplant at that time. Up to that point, the Jarvik heart was used for permanent replacement for the heart. but like many devices that were being looked at as potential solutions to severe heart failure uh, the model for testing that device was hard to find and bridge to transplantation, the phrase that was coined at that time became very attractive because it meant that you could put a pump in somebody knowing that you could bail them out at that time in a period of weeks to months with a heart transplant and not lay the full burden on the device, so you can mm-hmm. study its outcome. Uh-huh. So we began using the total artificial heart at that time because we felt that patients' hearts, when they failed, they failed on both sides, the right and the left.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So we began a series of implants at that time, but very quickly discovered that many patients died either on the device, although that wasn't usually the case, but they died after transplantation with immune suppression from infection. So the
0: device had something to do with that?
2: Well, we thought so initially but as we began looking at the data we realized that probably many of these patients were colonized with bacteria prior to getting the VAD and that they grew the same we began looking at organisms from their sputum from their secretions from lines in their veins etc and we found that many patients were colonized with the same bacteria that they got later in the chest around the heart pump or in the bloodstream so that made us think that you know maybe we should get the pump out of the chest
3: mm-hmm.
2: itself and put it somewhere else. And the only pumps that were available were left ventricular assist devices, which could be placed in the abdomen or under the belly muscle uh, in the abdomen. And and that made made us have to change our thinking a little bit, because up to that point, when a patient presented with severe heart failure, we generally felt that both sides of the heart were sick.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: So we started looking at this whole field from the perspective of maybe we could support just the left side of the heart. And initially, that meant that everybody would get a left ventricular assist device, an LVAD, and then we would see what would happen, and that, that really was, was a, a living experiment. We, we used the Novocore left ventricular assist device, which at that time was being studied as a bridge to tra- for use as a bridge to transplant device. So everybody got that device. And what we, again, quickly discovered over a period of a couple of years was that the sicker the patient was, the more likely the right heart wouldn't work very well. Mm -hmm. And we'd be left with a patient who would either die with the LVAD or would need a temporary right-sided support device. And so we then began looking at other devices, not just the and and... Then we were presented with the option of using the Thoratec system, which really allows you to place a pump on the left or the right side, except the pump sits outside the body. There are mm-hmm. tubes connecting to the heart and to the great vessels in the chest, but the actual pump sits outside the body with tubes going through the chest wall. Now, that device, when that became available, we began then having the ability to rationally look at patients and say, okay, here's a here's a group of patients with severe heart failure, with a lot of risk factors, where we will support both sides of the heart versus a group where we can strategically intervene, have a little more time, and really study them carefully as to what side is working and isn't working. And in those, we, if we can, we'll put a left ventricular assist device. And that strategy suddenly changed outcomes because now, in the critically ill patients, we would put biventricular support essentially to them, and we began seeing better outcomes than if we left them on an LVAD alone and with a temporary right side device. Okay, mm-hmm. because at the time again we couldn't distinguish all the factors. Mm-hmm. So we then were, we had, we developed one of the largest experiences in the world now, some 90 patients who have received L- BIVADs. And we now know what drives that outcome. We, we've learned a tremendous amount about how those patients will or will not survive a uh, bridge to transplant. And we also now have learned pretty much what patients will survive with an LVAD alone in that, that early period. Now, having said that, our strategies are, are still evolving.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We have newer pumps. We've gone from these pulsatile pumps, or pumps that try to mimic the way the heart actually works by delivering a pulsed flow, just like the heart does, to pumps that are rotary blood pumps, where they're more like turbines, and they pull blood out of the heart and return it to the great vessels. That has required that we look at patients even more critically because we know that those devices work optimally when the patient hasn't developed severe biventricular failure. And we're re-looking at our strategy of of LVAD and BIVAD use so that we are, in fact, now exploring, again, the use of temporary right-sided devices because the devices that we use now temporarily have become more sophisticated We have pumps now that are much more sophisticated, much less traumatic to the blood, and work uh, with less anticoagulation than we we used to have to give back in the 80s and early 90s.
0: Do I hear you saying that you are looking at intervening earlier when your patients are more healthy? Yeah. um, Because their quality of life won't be so bad, because they're not so reliant on anticoagulants. the device itself is probably a lot smaller than it was in the nineties.
2: That's partially true, yes.
0: And perhaps the risk of infection is much lower than it was yes. at the start. That's also true. So you but that must involve a massive education effort on behalf of you guys talking with cardiologists and cardiac surgeons, because you you're not out there picking out your patients necessarily yourself. You've you've they've got to be referred. Um,
2: well that's the delicate balance I mean I spoke to a patient this morning and and uh, he's a very big fella where he is a common blood type and we know that traditionally they're gonna wait six months before we will get an organ for him and he was just placed on drug therapy his status will be elevated to a higher status on the transplant list but the reality of getting him a heart within the time frame that he's gonna need to get a heart is still slim. Mm -hmm. However, knowing that mechanical support still denotes a certain risk of bleeding, infection, stroke, the inherent tendency of cardiologists is still to give them medical therapy until the patient begins to notice that his symptoms are failing on drug therapy, intravenous drug therapy. So he's been instructed to be very careful about his symptoms. When he begins to feel a change again that he's sliding down, then he's to call us immediately, and then we'll intervene with the pump at that point as opposed to bringing him into hospital and waiting for a number of weeks.
0: So earlier intervention with a pump may make for a healthier patient at transplant time mm-hmm. as well because um, I don't know if our listeners know that heart failure is not just heart failure. As that organ begins to fail other organ systems are
2: affected? Yeah, Unquestionably, um, heart failure is much like cancer. Uh, it, it, although cancer affects an organ, a specific organ, the body reacts to cancer in a way where other organs begin to show the signs of that cancer, even though they may not be involved, just from hormones that are secreted. And it's the same with heart failure. As the the heart fails to provide blood to the other organs, they begin to suffer. And you see kidney and liver disturbances. And you see changes in the body's response that are not unlike having a bad infection. Mm -hmm. There's an inflammatory process that takes place. And that makes the whole body ill. The patient feels sick. They may have fevers. But the other organs start to fail as well. Mm-hmm. So again, you want to get to the patient before those processes begin, where they where they start to look malnourished and they lose protein and and muscle mass, because they're going to have to get all that back on the assist device before they become good transplant candidates.
0: I'm thinking too of the uh, the great strides in immune suppression that have, most of which have, um, come out of this center here at the University of Pittsburgh, where. Um, the quality of life of a successful transplant patient can be quite high because these once very powerful drugs with you know incredible side effects can be minimized to the point sure. where there's, there's not um, so much impact on how one chooses to participate in activities and one's lifestyle. So uh, you know, what I hear you saying is that we could set in chain in, in action, this chain of intervention that's, that goes on earlier and earlier and earlier. And perhaps transplant is still the end goal because it's at the time, at, you know, right now that's the best standard of, of care we can provide across the board to people with, you know, severe heart failure. But they could be healthier at transplant time, and then they could be healthier after transplant time, not only because of the reduction in anti-rejection drugs, but because they haven't suffered from the beginnings of multiple organ failure. Sure prior to transplanting. Yeah, transplant. yeah so. I mean,
2: I think we have to be very clear that the only proven therapy, long-term outcome that can be demonstrated, the only the long-term outcome that is beneficial in heart failure is heart transplantation. Um, everything else is still being investigated. Mm-hmm. Drugs, um, pacemakers, um, jackets that you can place around the heart to change how it dilates, uh, even left ventricular assist devices used long-term, all of that is still investigational. Now, having said that, if a patient is not a good candidate for transplant for a variety of reasons, be it obesity, age, uh, cancer, liver failure, kidney failure, we know that medical therapy is far inferior in that patient, than if they got a left ventricular assist device. So we know that what we now call destination therapy or therapy for lifetime use, as it's called by some companies, in that situation a left ventricular assist device will work very well and provide a patient with as high as a 70 to 80% two-year survivorship if you select patients carefully. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So it couldn't be as good as that. It can also be as bad as 20% survivorship at two years. If you take patients who have, for example, bad lungs, bad kidneys, bad liver, um, plus they're very old, then you're into a very high-risk category. So somewhere in between there lie a group of patients who, without the benefit of a left ventricular assist device, will probably die within two years Mm -hmm. on medical therapy, but with a device they have about a 75 percent chance of being still alive at two years so again that requires careful patient selection Mm
3: -hmm.
2: now again some of those patients may be and and may demonstrate those patients may demonstrate that they could be good transplant candidates after a period of support on the device so let's say a patient comes in and has a cancer prostate Mm -hmm. other types of cancers uh, in women breast and other uh, cancers where you know that if they live two years beyond their original cancer treatment that their chances of living longer become increasingly better. So if they present in heart failure in that window you may say well like, we can't transplant them right now. So giving them a device for two or three years allowing them to show that they're cancer free now would bring them in back into the transplant range so that, again, a device now could be used more long-term in those cases as opposed to what we consider the bridge for six months to eight months kind of thing or less for a, trans- a regular transplant candidate.
0: Wait, I want to point out um, that you're about to celebrate your 20th anniversary at the artificial heart program here at the University of Pittsburgh, and we talked a lot about that bridge to transplant, which was the original intention for mm-hmm. artificial heart devices. What else are they being used for that we haven't yet discussed?
2: Well, there's, there's really an awful lot of work that needs to be done to understand the benefit that a, an assist device plays in allowing the heart to heal itself. We know that now that in, in close to 20 patients here at the University of Pittsburgh, we've been able to allow the heart to recover on an assist device over a period of two to three months. And when we re-examine that heart, the muscle has improved to such an extent that we can take that pump out and allow the patient to live a normal life without needing a transplant. Now, to date, that's been very specific. Uh, it's been, To date, that's been seen in a very specific subset of patients who have had short-term heart failure from either a virus uh, due to pregnancy or due to a sudden heart attack where the heart was very sick for a while but then after a coronary bypass got better but needed the pump temporarily so again in about 18-19 patients we've been able to allow the heart to recover and then take the pump out now could that be a larger population well in fact i think if we understood more about heart failure about what causes irreversible change in the heart which is part of the mission of research now is to understand where that point of irreversibility occurs, then if we could understand that, we might be able to see tremendous benefit from an assist device for a period of a year or less, maybe six months, where the heart failure process can be reversed, and that heart will then go back to a performance level where you might avoid a transplant. And we see this having tremendous potential in acute myocardial infarction, where in many cases, the heart which undergoes a heart attack becomes strained in areas beyond where that blood vessel was just occluded, but in, in other areas around the heart, they also suffer. And when they, when they get stretched out from acute heart failure, that muscle also becomes damaged. And then the patient may live through the heart attack, but he will develop heart failure over a period of four to five years. And that heart then will, will not recover. But if we had a way of inserting a small pump into the heart at the time of a severe heart attack like that, taking the load off the heart, letting it heal itself, even over a period of six to seven days, we then have now a completely radical therapy that could prevent heart failure from ever starting. And indeed, we have pumps like this, which will become available to us probably in the new year, that can be placed through the arteries, floated into the heart, wow. in the cath lab, where we can reduce the pressure to the heart these, and, and reverse the heart attack process. These, these pumps are, will be available and actually are being studied now. When that pilot study is done, we will then enroll, begin to enroll here probably by the end of the year, and that could completely change how we approach this problem.
0: Did we? Did the group here have a hand in developing that device, as it has in developing so many others?
2: Not this particular one. This was developed in Germany. It's called the Impella device. It's made by. It, it's marketed by Abiomed right now. And there are some other new technologies out there, little mini pumps, which I think will be uh, implantable through minimally invasive operations instead of the big bypass operations that we do now. That I think we're going to look at over the next uh, year to two years. And. And that's not to say that there's a whole pediatric population out there that could possibly benefit from this strategy of recovering a sick heart.
0: Sure. Um, And we talked to Dr. Borovitz recently about developing really small devices Mm -hmm. that are suitable for pediatric populations, you know, coin-sized or so. How much external support do these sorts of devices, even the ones that can be installed in a cath lab, do they require, and what kind of mobility would a patient have while using them short-term?
2: Well, right now we're, you know, we've gone from refrigerator-sized controllers down to, you know, a quart of milk. I mean, they, they've they really shrunk down. And indeed, uh, for some of these smaller devices, we're we're looking at, you know, controllers the size of a paperback novel. So I think, you know, people will be very mobile with this type of device. Um, They'll be able to get around and do things and live a reasonable quality of life while their hearts are healing.
0: And what are you guys doing to celebrate your 20th anniversary of success here in Pittsburgh? Well,
2: uh, we have uh, quite an event planned for October the 14th uh, at uh, Heinz Field. Um, And we have the good fortune of having Regis Philbin join us for that evening. Uh, he will be the sort of main uh, event with a 14-piece jazz orchestra. Uh, he, he will give us his perspective on uh, on heart failure, um, talk to us a little bit about his own experiences with heart disease, and, and then entertain us for about half an hour. Uh, there will be a number of other individuals that will join us at this event, uh, not only local dignitaries and, and members of local and state government, but also people that help develop the field, um, the inventors, if you will, of some of these pumps, like Pierre Portner from NovaCore, uh, Bob Jarvik, whom you've seen on lots of ad- advertisements for Lipitor these days, uh, will, will also join us and say a few words. Uh, but I, we're looking forward to that, plus the fact that many patients will also attend. Some some patients who have actually had their hearts recover on these devices are planning to be there. So you know, it'll be a, a nice mix of, of um, individuals from the community, the health system, and patients.
0: That's nice. Now, you must have been a very young man at the beginning of this. <laughs> well, I know that you were pretty much just out of your fellowship when you joined up with the team here um, around 1985, is mm-hmm. that right? Um, the first use of a total artificial heart here in Pittsburgh. Um, what, would, what did it feel like going into that sort of pioneering um, only second of its kind? Well,
2: uh, to be honest, uh, th- th- this I mean goes back a little bit further than that. Um, uh, one, of, one of my interests when I was a uh, resident at the University of Toronto in cardiac surgery was transplantation and assist devices. And at that time in 1983 and 84, there really wasn't a transplant program at the University of Toronto. And uh, after reading everything I could, I I had spoken to uh, Leonard Golding, actually, at the Cleveland Clinic. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Golding had A protocol for the use of a left ventricular assist device that was a a little rotary pump that was being used at that time for other purposes. And so I wrote a protocol at the University of Toronto with one of the surgeons there that was also kind of visionary and wanted to do some things. And so a patient came along, I think, in 1984, and I did actually the first LVAD in Canada at that time using this rotary pump that was a commercial pump, but we kind of put the kit together to be able to help support a patient, and she got better. Uh, We weaned that patient off the pump. Wow. And we did a second patient who we could not wean, and the irony was that at that time, again, looking through the literature, I called the University of Pittsburgh and talked to Bart Griffith at the time to see if they would take that patient and transfer from Canada for a heart transplant. But, of course, the risks were awfully high at that point, and, and we couldn't do that. But then I ran into them. Shortly thereafter, I ran into Bob and Bart at a meeting and had actually committed to go to Hershey, Pennsylvania to study their... because that's where a lot of research at the time was being done. And Dr. Borowitz and Dr. Griffith and Dr. Hardesty talked me out of going to Hershey and staying here because they were getting the Arthur's heart. So that pretty much caught my attention. And, uh, you know, in those days it was uh, sleeping at the bedside and it was completely new technology. There were no books, no rules, and um, it was on-job training, and it was very exciting. I mean, it really was a time when you were developing the field.
0: Tell me about the pitch to the average patient who who you think will benefit from one of these devices. Maybe they've heard about it in the newspaper, maybe they haven't. How do you pose this brand-new technology against the risks and benefits and what not
2: well it's it's hard i think um you know it's one of the reasons that i always say that the patients that we've treated are are the pioneers i mean we certainly have been called that in the past because we develop protocols and devices but the pioneers are really the the patients that use the technology and you know to them i i think i guess the main point is that in many cases um Patients are felt are led to believe that there is no hope, and that they have a disease that they're either too old to treat, or they have too many problems. They look too ill, and I guess my message to them is that there is hope, um, there are alternatives, and that they should really seek out therapy and make an informed decision. I mean, they should really, in their, their own minds, they have to decide whether they want to go through with this. But I would encourage patients with severe heart failure to look around for options, because in many cases, the options are there. They just may not be aware of them, nor maybe their physicians may not be aware of them and still feel that some of this is experimental, and, and so they'd be reluctant to look at these options. I but, imagine
0: if you're faced with a death sentence, which is a grim way of putting it, um, that the, taking a chance on even a new sort of technology, even back in 1985 or what have you, probably seems like a viable option yeah. because, it, you ha- because it is an option where you otherwise Yeah, have
2: absolutely. And, and I can't tell you the number of times a year that patients come to us for either assessment for transplantation or for the use of a pump to get to a heart transplant um, where they've been told by good doctors that there's no hope. Mm-hmm. that you're not a good transplant candidate because maybe you have diabetes or they are not going to transplant you because of this or that or the other thing. And that happens frequently every year that we see patients that are extremely ill, but somebody's decided that they're too ill. And, you know, I guess I would say they really, yes, there may be too ill in some cases, but that's very rare. Mm-hmm. And I think... When patients are told that, they should come and look at other options before they just say, I can't be fixed.
0: Yeah. What's next for heart assist devices? Where do you see the field going?
2: Well, for me, I really see biology and technology as a spectrum that's becoming more and more blurred. And one of the things that is unique about the University of Pittsburgh is the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. And this is where I think biology and, and technology come together. And I honestly uh, feel very strongly that as we move forward, that more and more of the technology that we, we use will become merged with biological solutions to the point where they'll become indistinguishable. So that that the use of... Mechanical support devices for the heart will become more routine, but more enmeshed in biofeedback circuits, in, in biological therapies such as stem cell therapy, which can be combined with uh, the assist devices, um, gene therapy. All of this will become, I think, muddied and 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 a lot more blurred to the point where it will be hard to distinguish pretty soon what's machine and what's biology.
0: Now that we've blue-skied the field, though, what are some of the challenges that you see moving forward to achieve that?
2: Well, the challenges, I think, is that the biggest challenge is understanding how to bring that amalgam together. And I think that that requires um, thinking in ways that we haven't really traditionally looked at disease processes before. We have a tendency to look at them as one or the other, you know, solution. Um, It also, I think, the biggest challenge will be to to understand some of these newer therapies. I think we don't understand stem cell therapy and gene therapy very well yet. We don't understand how it works. Um, And that all has to be overcome. There's a lot of myth, a lot of media hype, um, a lot of misconception about what stem cells, for example, can and can't do. And same with the heart assist devices. And I think that myth, abstracting the science from that, is, is a big challenge. It requires a lot of work, which is partly why the gala is taking place, is obviously to raise money to be able to bring bright people in here to solve these problems.
0: Okay. Is there anything you'd like to add that we may have missed today?
2: No, I, I think, I mean, really, f- you know, it's interesting. I, I think that um, the McGowan Center, where it sits, um, it, for example, and where UPMC sits in relation, is a is a very unique uh, environment. I mean, I think that, you know, the the strength of this region and this city, used to be steel, and uh, I think the strength now will be use of innovative medical technology, which in, in many respects um, is a big leap, but there are very strong similarities in terms of the strengths of both. And I, I think we'll see some, some great things in the future.
0: We'll look forward to that. Thanks for joining us today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Leah. That was a great discussion. For more information about Dr. Cormos, see our links on our website at regenerativemedicinetoday.com.
0: And don't forget to join us for our next podcast on the latest from the field of regenerative medicine two weeks from now.
1: If you have ideas for future podcasts or would just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let us remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice.
0: We do hope that you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast, sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Join us again in just a few weeks.